this is lesson number three. The title of this is Established in Righteousness. This was going to be just one, just a one-time shot, but uh, God had other plans. The Holy Spirit manifest last week, and although I preached, it was uh, different than what I normally do, but it kind of went along with the notes. So we're talking about uh, what it means to be righteous in God. How many know Jesus made you righteous? And the reason I'm talking about this is we go into our future uh, which looks like could be the future just prior to Jesus' return. It's important to have a firm foundation and a belief system underneath you. In unstable times, you need something that produces stability. How many know the Word of God will produce stability in your life? Uh, back years and years ago in the 70s, when I first came to the Lord, I came across the scripture, Isaiah 33, verse 6. And then my pastor in, in Tulsa of the church I worked at mentioned it constantly. Wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of your times and strength of salvation. It's not in the notes, guys. It's just kind of impromptu. So again, if you get the word of God in you, how many know it's a stabilizer in your life? You know, it's like a gyro. It keeps you going a certain direction. And I don't care what kind of winds are blowing and things are stirring up in the culture, in the world. It'll keep you stable. When you're going through challenges and problems, how many know it's the word that gets you through them? Yeah. So, gee, how many know Jesus is the living word? And then I was thinking of Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. It says, as you therefore receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. When the Bible says walk in him, it says walk in love. We're to walk in peace. We're to walk in righteousness. Here it says we're to walk in him. That Greek word for walk means something that you do 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's your constant way of living. He says walk in him, live in him all the time. And then verse 7 says, rooted and built up in him. What do you mean rooted and built up in Jesus? That's what he said. What does it mean for the roots of your being to, to be rooted in Jesus? That means your mindset, the way you live, the motivations for life. How many know they come from him? And then when the winds of adversity blow, you know, a tree, I saw a video, maybe you've seen this video uh, out and about on YouTube or wherever of, of strong winds blowing and there's a bunch of trees around and here's this one tree. They honed in on the bottom of this one tree. It had a very shallow root system and as the wind blew, the roots were trying to move the tree and trying to push it over because the roots were very, very shallow. How many know if your roots of a tree are deep, it's going to be hard for a wind to blow it over, right? And so that's what he's saying here, rooted and built up in him, in Jesus. That means who we are and what we think about ourselves should come from who we are in Jesus, right? Established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Again, we just need a firm foundation. We've been talking about righteousness for the last two Sundays. By God's grace, I'll get through with this today. But righteousness is something that we need to be aware of that Jesus has performed for us and given to us as a free gift. I've mentioned three scriptures the last two Sundays, Proverbs 28, 1, the wicked flee when no man pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Don't you like that? And then Isaiah 54, 14, in righteousness you will be established. You will be far from oppression for fear uh, you shall not fear and from terror uh, for it shall not come near you. Outward things change, but you know when you're established in who you are in Jesus, you know you can go to him. He hears and answers prayer. He's a shield, he's a protector, and he's a defender for us. Is that true? And he's also our provider. 
And then Isaiah 32, 17, the work of righteousness will be peace and the effect of righteousness, quietness, and then assurance forever. I defined righteousness the last two weeks as the ability to stand before God without the sense of guilt, condemnation, and inferiority just as though you'd never done wrong. Now, you know, we had our ninth grand. In fact, you got that grandbaby's picture. Throw that grandbaby picture up on the screen. Up, oh, this is Eden Shiloh Horton. Yeah. I forgot why I said that. Now I got all caught up. <laughs> Baby, that's why. Show the other picture of me looking. I, love the, I like the other one too. So this is this one of the first times I got to hold Eden. Isn't that sweet? So that's grandchild number nine. One thing about a baby is they have no past. Huh? You think about a baby, you think about softness. I love, don't you love to feel a little baby's skin? Their face skin is so soft. You kiss them on the cheek, it's so soft. And they're so gentle. Now they cry loud. And Eden, I found out she's got a big set of lungs. I'm telling you, oh, look at her. Yeah, so, uh, but she has no past. And that's the way God made you. You can live before God just as though you have no past. A brand new baby in his eyes. Is that good? So I've talked about seven important things to know about righteousness. Again, the Holy Spirit kind of fell on us last Sunday. And we had words of knowledge and this and that and prayed for people and such. But, uh, and in the middle of that, I still was able to get a lot of what I wanted to say out, not just the way it was in my notes. But nonetheless, there's seven points that I'm wanting to get across about righteousness. Number one, guilt and condemnation. How many know are the main enemies to a stone relationship with God and a positive change in your life? Now, psychologists tell, tell their students uh, in secular colleges that religion is a neurosis. Did you know that? That, that religion is actually a problem because it puts an onus on you to perform and act a certain way. And so instead of being freed, you're encumbered. I say that's hogwash and trash. Because we're not just a mind and a body, we're spirit, soul, and body. And God created us in his image, in his likeness to know him. And you have an intuit, intuitive part of you called conscience, and conscience is the voice of the human spirit speaking to us. A person saved or unsaved, a person that knows the Lord or doesn't know the Lord, a person saved from their sin or living in their sin has a conscience. You can have a conscience that is defiled by the culture around you or you have a conscience that's broken down because you allow anything into your life, right? Uh, so, or you can have a very strong conscience where you deal with yourself and, you know, you put the parameters around your life. Freedom is not doing anything you want to do anytime you want to do it. Because if you live that way, you produce your own bondage. Freedom without restraint is bondage. Maybe we need to tell that to our current culture. Huh? You can give yourself freedom to do a lot of things. But if you don't put parameters around your life, you can get into some deep, deep trouble, right? So again, guilt and condemnation are the main enemy. Finding a way to deal with guilt, finding a way to deal with condemnation. How many know it does bring great personal freedom? Say this so Jesus helps us deal with guilt and condemnation. The, the other, other end of that is what I just said. There are those who, because they don't want to have guilt, 
and they don't want to have condemnation. They choose to live as though there is no God and no judgment and no life beyond this one. You know, uh, you can say what you want about there. Here's the way I look at that. If you're, if you're, if you're right and you believe there is no God, you die and you go into nothingness, then you've got to avoid empty life. You say, well, but if I live like, but if I live the way I do, that I believe the Bible's the word of God, I believe it's inspired. I believe God created us in his image, in his likeness as eternal spirit beings that will one day give account to him. Huh? If I live that way, give my life to Jesus and live by a conscience that is saturated with the word of God, then when I die, I've got eternity to enjoy the blessings of God. But if you live the other way and you're wrong, you got literally hell to pay. Selah. That's an Old Testament word for pause and calmly think about that. Right? You got a lot of people today, I, I, you know, we, we, we've got a culture right now that is just out of control in every way. Would you agree? And we need to remind ourselves that there is a God and he does love us. You know, when I came to Jesus at age 18, it was as though the uh, life was like a jigsaw puzzle with a thousand pieces in it. And as I came to Jesus, I began to read the Bible. I began to pray and seek the Lord and find out about him. It's like the pieces of life's puzzle for me began to put together. And I had a lot of aha moments. Have you? So, so that's the way that is. So that's the way I feel. That's the reason that works that way. That's the way I feel. That's the reason I feel that. Oh, yeah. So guilt and condemnation are main enemies of your life as a believer, and they can hinder your faith, hinder your ability to pray, and Jesus has done something with that by making us righteous. We'll talk more about it in a minute. second point that I have made is knowing that you're righteous in Christ can give you an inward confidence, and that boosts your spiritual life. You don't much want to go to somebody if you think they're upset and angry with you all the time and you haven't you know God loves us he's angry at sin he hates sin but he loves the sinner for God so loved the world I love amplified translation of John 3 16 for God so greatly loved and prized the world that he gave his only son isn't that good so he loves us and because he loves us he has made us righteous so that we can have fellowship with him and not be afraid to come into his presence. Number three, third point I've made is righteousness produces a personal confidence and assurance. You can walk, you know, one of my grandchildren, it's uh, Benny. If you know Benny, you know what I'm about to say. I love Benny. Benny's a little, little over three years old. And, uh, you know, when Benny walks in my house or when Benny walks in the room, let me show you how Benny walks. Is that true? Mom and dad sitting back there? That boy walks with the confidence of like, I know who I am. You know who you are? I know what I want. Do you know what you want? I know who you are. Do you know who I am? There's an in inward confidence that comes, that comes from a sense of peace. Now, Benny lives that way because his mom and daddy love him. But you know, they put standards around him. Gigi and I, I'm Poppy. Uh, we love him, but he also knows there's standards living in my house. But he knows when he comes see me, you know, I'm a big old tall guy, so he just comes and grabs my knee and grabs me and hugs me, so I pick him up. And the same way with his sister. But, you know, when you know that God loves you, when you're assured of his care and you're confident 
of your relationship with him. How many know it makes a lot of difference? You don't have to walk around looking at the dirt. You can hold your head high as a king's kid. Is that right? Number four, righteousness, playing off of number three, righteousness brings two kinds of peace. We talked about it last week. Uh, peace with God. Everybody say peace with God. That means your sins are adequately dealt with. We'll talk about that in a minute. And then the peace of God. Everybody say the peace of God. Now, you can have peace with God because you've been born again and you know Jesus has cleansed your sin, but you may not have the peace of God on your life. The peace of God comes by rightly relating moment by moment to the Holy Spirit. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, Colossians 3.15, to which you're called in one body and be thankful. The peace of God comes by rightly relating to the Holy Spirit and having fellowship with the Lord on a moment by moment basis. And so if if you're a believer, but there's unrest in you, you need to check up on how you're living. I got to call, right? Because you, if you're living in a way that God never intended that you live, you won't have that sense of peace. And you won't have the peace of God on you. You may be God's child, but not have the peace on you. Let me also say, if you're out of the will of God, uh, I started ministry. I need to meddle a little bit here. I started ministry in October, October of 1981. So this is my, what, 42nd year in ministry. I started ministry out of the will of God. Finished my second Bible school and uh, became a pastor, associate pastor of a church in my hometown. And I moved my wife 1,200 miles, Anna, out of the will of God. And I became an associate pastor of a church. And I was as miserable as you could ever imagine in fact, Susan used to make some of the, you know, I, I used to drink a lot of sweet tea. I don't drink as much now, but Susan makes the best sweet tea this side of the Mississippi River. And uh, I mean, it's strong stuff. And uh, so I just remember several months into that pastoring that church in South Carolina, it was like February of uh, 1982 by then. I'm sitting there and we're after church, you know, had a church service and whatever and and this afternoon, I usually preached on the Sunday night because that service uh, church had a Sunday night service. And I'm sitting there, I remember sitting at the table. And, and I'm looking at her and I'm picking up my little glass of tea and taking a swallow of it. And I'm thinking, I, I might have said that to Susan. I said, I, I'm just miserable. I, I don't know what it is. I'm just miserable. And when I was in uh, Kenneth Hagin school, Rama Bible College, he would say, if you're out of the will of God, not doing what God called you to do, he said, one way you can know it is kind of like taking a shower with your socks on. Something's just not quite right. Doesn't feel right, right? Just inside. And I had that sense every single day. So if you're in here and you feel like something's just not quite right, check up, check up and see if you got the peace of God. Are you obeying what God said to you? How many hear what I'm saying? Now, God got me back into his will. It was a supernatural thing. Susan and I moved back to Tulsa. I got on staff at a, a large church there, and that was my apprenticeship in ministry. But I know how it feels to be out of the will of God. So the peace with God, peace of God. Number five, when you're established in righteousness, Satan and others can no longer control you. Satan in uh, Revelation 12 is called the accuser of the brethren and accuses us before our God day and night night and so he's the plaintiff he's the one that has a complaint against us and then we have to have a good defense attorney how many know his name is Jesus 
When you know Jesus, you no longer have to be motivated by your, demotivated by your past mistakes, your past failures. And then you know what? You can hold your head high like Benny does when he walks in my house because you know you're a king's kid. He knows he's my grandson. And you know, he walks in quite boldly. And, and, and you won't allow someone else to, put, to blame you for their problems. In fact, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 3, it matters very little to me. Paul said, what you or any man thinks of me, I don't even value my opinion of myself. Now, there's a man that was walking like Benny. And you know what? If you're constantly being uh, tossed by other people's opinions and that's swayed by what other people think about you, you need to learn who you are in Jesus, right? And then you know what? Uh, we mentioned this last week. When you come to know Jesus' righteousness, then you will be able to own your mistakes and not blame shift and blame somebody else for the stuff that you're responsible for. That's a big problem in our culture today, and I could spend the rest of the time today talking about that, but I want to get to number six and seven. Today, there are six words, this is number six in the New Testament, that refer to righteousness. And what I'm about to share, when I studied this out, this really helped me. Six words <coughs> in the New Testament all of them have the same Greek root word. Now, the New Testament was written in Aramaic and Greek, Aramaic and many of the some of the Gospels, but then Greek for the whole thing, you know. And then the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the whole Bible and of the Old Testament particularly. But there are six words in the New Testament that have the same root word. Uh, for righteousness. And, and this really, if you understand this, it'll straighten some things out in your head. Uh, the words just, justify, justification. There's one side of a coin. And then you got right. Everybody say right. Righteous and righteousness. See, the root word for both of those are the same. Those are, those are, are, are two sides of the same coin, okay, of what Jesus did for, uh, of what Jesus did for us. And uh, justification in righteousness or right standing with God, they go together. And then there are four other words in the New Testament that have the same Greek root word. If you understand the difference, if you can differentiate this, you'll no longer be a person that tries to do things to please God. No, you do things out of love for him, but you know that Jesus pleases him for you. You get the difference? So the other four words, watch this, are, put them on the screen, or you already got them, you already blew, uh, you know, you stole my thunder. Sanctify, sanctification, holy, holiness. See, those words go together. Some people try to equate righteousness with holiness. Did you know you can have the standing of righteousness and you still need to clean your life up? How many hear what I'm saying? See, sanctification is a standing before God that makes you stand out or apart from the world and places you in a position where Jesus wants to change your life. Yes or no? In fact, it's God who is at work within us both to will and do of his good pleasure. That's the process that God's working into every one of us. In fact, the word sanctification is not used very frequently. In fact, when's the last time you... You uh, used that in your in conversation with somebody this past week. Did you say anything about sanctify? How about anything about being holy? Anything about holiness? See, it's not part of our culture. It's not part of our normal vernacular. The word holy literally means when, when the Bible says God is holy, when, when, when uh, God appeared to Moses uh, there in the desert and called him at 80 years of old to, 
80 years of age to, to bring the Israelites out of uh, Egypt. Uh, he said uh, the burning bush was burning. And he said, Moses, take your shoes off. You're on a holy ground. The word holy. And then God is holy. He revealed himself to the Israelites as holy. They had impure gods who were worshipped by sexual immorality. And God revealed himself as the holy God. And that word holy simply, if you boil it down, it means to be set apart. It means completely different from everything else. For us to be holy, it means we're set apart from everything else to be used by God exclusively. How many hear me? So, so those are four other words. So you got just, justified, justification, right, righteous, and righteousness on one side. The other side, you got sanctified, sanctification, holy, holiness. Now, let me say this about being sanctified. How many know when you come to Jesus, he snatches your life out of the world? He takes you out of your culture and says, I'm bringing you to myself. I'm putting new interests in you, new desires in you. I want you to live a different life from everybody else. I've called you. I've called you and then I've equipped you. And that's what he was saying to the people in Corinth, a very licentious, wicked, immoral city. They, had, uh, they worshiped false gods with uh, rampant sexual immorality. In fact, they, they, had, uh, they had priests in the temple who were uh, uh, women priests. They would go to have sex within the temple. It was terrible. And Paul had to talk about sexuality, had to talk about marriage because it was all... It was all a mess in Corinth. And then the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he said something about the fact that they had been set free and are different from the culture they're living in. And he said, don't be unequally yoked together. 2 Corinthians 6, 14, with unbelievers, what fellowship has righteousness, calls a believer righteousness, with lawlessness, calls a unbeliever lawlessness, what communion has light with darkness, Believers light, unbelievers darkness, what accord has Christ with Belial, another term for the false gods that they worshiped, or what part has a believer with an unbeliever, and what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you're the temple of the living God. As God has said, I'll dwell in them and walk among them. I'll be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate. Now that's to be sanctified. You get it? And he says, do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you'll be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty in the 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Again, chapter and verses were added later. This was just a letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian believers, the second one. He said, therefore, because of what I just said, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. Everybody say cleanse ourselves. So sanctification has something to do with you. In its second phase, righteousness has to do with what Jesus did in your, in your place. Sanctification has to do with what you choose to do with you. Right? Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit, external and internal, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Then he brings both of them together in 1 Corinthians 1.30 and says, but of him are you in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. There is a sense to where you are sanctified. When you come to Jesus, you are set apart. Jesus has put his stamp on you. In fact, you know, you buy a house or buy a piece of property, even buy a car, you put some earnest money down, right? What does that earnest money say? Well, uh, that's my promise, and I'm going to go get the money to pay for the rest of this. I want that. 
And so the Bible says the Holy Spirit is the earnest of our inheritance. God's put something, his spirit inside of us. And when you come to Jesus, God says, you're mine. Now I want you to come out and act like you're mine. And let me change you. So this is not my message. I could preach on this a long time. There's three phases to being set apart to God. That initial phase, Jesus draws you out of the world. When he does that, he gives you a desire to please him. He gives you a desire inside to separate yourself from habits and words and things that would lead you away from God that are in your life currently, right? If you're smoking, he'll give you a desire to quit. If you're a drunkard, he'll give you a desire to quit. If you smoke weed, he'll give you a desire to stop smoking weed. If you look at porn, he'll give you a desire to stop looking at porn. If, you, if you're immoral, he'll give you a desire to stop being immoral, right? If you're an angry person, he'll deal with you about controlling your anger. Yeah, how many hear me? If you're a gossiper, he'll deal with you about stopping it. See, see, initially Jesus brings us out of the world. That's sanctification, but there's a daily progressive work of being set apart unto God. And that, that's going to happen from the time you know Jesus until the time you hear the trumpet and, and Jesus said, come up here and you go to in the rapture of the church or you die. From the time you know Jesus until the time you vacate this physical body or it's changed in the air when Jesus comes back. We're all being changed from glory to glory. Is that true? And the, and the, and the, the definition of that change, the amount of that change that occurs is determined by you. It is not determined by God. Boy, meddling now. It's quiet in here. And then there's a final sanctification or being set apart. That final sanctification happens one of two ways. Either you die and vacate your body and you, you enter, enter the spirit realm and go to heaven as a disembodied spirit and you stay that way and God gives you a robe of righteousness until the rapture of the church. At the rapture of the church, if you're here, and we may be the generation that sees the rapture, wouldn't that be exciting? The substance of your body is immediately transformed. And you shed this flesh. And you have a flesh and bone body, not a flesh and blood body. Then all the desires to do wrong immediately evaporate. Ah. Now won't that be great? Until then, you got to resist. You got to say no, right? And you got to say yes to Jesus. And you got to, you got to get on your face and say, God, help me and, and ask him to change you, right? So there's justification and, and, and there's sanctification, right? Uh, there's to justify, to be made righteous, and then there is to be made holy. Two sides of the same coin. So, so watch this. So, so justification doesn't make you holy. Righteousness doesn't make you holy. And then you dressing up real fine and got your Bible in your hand, reading your Bible before church. You know, I notice people, they read the Bible before church. Why don't you go fellowship with people? Read your Bible at home. I just wonder, you know, I just wonder what that's all about. I'm at church reading my Bible. Read your Bible at home. You go out and mingle with the saints here. So why are you doing that in front of everybody? Question mark, question. I hope it's not to be righteous. No, that does not work. Huh? No, no, trying to be a believer doesn't make you righteous. 
Praying doesn't make you righteous. Fasting doesn't make you righteous. Bible reading doesn't make you righteous. Dressing up in fine threads doesn't make you righteous. Huh? Jesus makes you righteous. Right? So let's talk a little bit about justification. And uh, in fact, I'm not even going to cover this. I've got nine scripture references with multiple scriptures in all of them. And we cover just, justification, uh, justify, right, righteous, righteousness, and those scriptures. And you'll see them. They're all through the New Testament uh, book of Romans. The Roman road is just full of justification by faith. I'll read one. Romans 3, for instance, says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation or, or an atonement or a satisfaction of God's anger against sin by his blood through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness because of in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. That's a lot to say. But see, that, that contains that whole idea that, that to be justified and to be righteous are, are, are on the same coin, just different sides. And to be sanctified or set apart and then to live a holy life. See, those are, those are two different sides of the same coin. Jesus initially sets you apart from the world, but you got to eke it out in your personal life. You have got to put shoe leather on, you, on the Word. If all you do is read the Word but don't practice it, you'll never change. Is that right? So let me just say it this way. If you're the same this year as you were last year, something's wrong. If I could look five years ago and look today, well, I'm kind of like I was five years ago. Something's wrong. It ought to be. In fact, I was looking, you know, I got photos and various things on my TV in my house and all. And, uh, and so we got this rolling thing of photos. And it shows my family. I love my family. So we got all these kids and grandkids and stuff. So it's constantly rolling. But over the years, you know, we got some of them pictures I was looking at yesterday while I was studying. Some of them, nine to 10 years old, it's like, well, look at Susan's hairdo. Look at my hairdo. <laughs> and, and then I was looking at the house. Well, the house has changed. We didn't have that piece of furniture. We painted the walls. The bedroom looks different. We updated that. We did that. See, when you look at the pictures, it's like, we're not that way now, right? So how about the picture of your life? If the picture of your life shows today what you were last week, last month, last year, Five years ago, something is the matter. You got to straighten it up. And what the matter is, you got in the way. You, you stop seeking God. Somewhere you got bogged down in your flesh. Let's get real, right? All right, so, so, so let's go a little further here. So, so there are a bunch of scripture. I've got them in the notes. I do encourage you to get the notes and look at them. I'm not going to take time to mess with that today. The seventh point is what I want to end with today. Righteousness, listen to me, does two major things for you. We'll come back to talk about sanctification, being set apart, what that looks like. But today, let me finish up righteousness. Righteousness does two things for you. And, and before I even go there, Who God is and what we think God is are two different things. How many hear me? 21st century America, people do not have the revelation that God is holy. Okay? 
the average person on the street feels like God is love. In fact, most people say, well, God loves me. I just know God loves me. Gloop, 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 drunk, drunk, drunk. God just loves me. <laughs> God loves me. Or you smell skunk everywhere, which is weed. Somebody smoking weed. I was I got walking by my house saying, I smell skunk everywhere. I said, sir, it ain't a skunk, it's weed. Somebody in our neighborhood smoking weed in their backyard and you smell it. I don't like to say all that, but it's true. It's a common malady in, in America. Have you noticed? People are giving them, why am I saying all that? People are giving themselves permission to do things that should not be done by believers. But Christians are giving themselves permissions to do things they shouldn't do because it's accepted by the culture. So what, why is it accepted by our culture? Because our culture says God is love. Our culture does not say God is holy. So most people think that they're going to heaven because God is love. You're not going to heaven because God is love. Don't forget that Jesus looked right smooth down his nose at, at Judas and loved him. But Judas went to hell. God is love. God's love will, will, will um, follow you right to the gates of hell. In fact, wow, that's a weird thought. David in Psalm 139 said, if I make my bed in hell, behold, you there. You could be in the flames of hell and God saying, I still love you. I wish you didn't do what you did, but I love you. Why didn't you listen to me? I wanted to help you. I didn't want you to spend eternity here. I love you. I still love you. You don't go to heaven because God is love. You go to heaven because of Jesus. Jesus Christ is the manifestation of the love of God. Let me read this again, Psalm 50, verse 16. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to declare my statutes? Or, this is not in my notes, guys, sorry. Or take my covenant in your mouth, seeing you hate instruction. Cast my words behind you. When you saw a thief, you consented with it. It's all right to steal that money. You can, you can sell to that, that to that person. You know you could sell it for a lot less, and you know you're lying through your teeth, but go ahead and do it. And have been partakers with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil. Your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak, speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son, your brother. Phew. These things you have done and I kept silent. Just because God doesn't say something and you don't feel conviction about something you're involved in doesn't mean it's not wrong. It just means, number one, you may have a hard heart and you can't feel God at all because sin hardens. So let me say it again. If you can go in the paths of wrongdoing and it doesn't bother you and you say, well, God must not be too upset. I had a guy, this is 2006, sit in my office and I'm sitting in the chair. He's sitting in the chair and I had already counseled with his wife and she said, this boy is sleeping with another woman. And I confronted him. I said, sir, you're part of our church, have been for X number of years and you're sleeping with somebody, ain't your wife? He said, that's all right, God loves me. I said, do you want to go to hell? See, people have the idea they can send their way right into heaven. Why? Because they don't understand God's nature. 
These things you have done and I kept silent just because God is not silent. God is silent doesn't mean that what you're doing is right. It may be that he's given you an opportunity to repent. Or like I said earlier, you just can't feel him. You thought that I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and set them in order before you eyes. Now I said all that to, to, to set it up for, for righteousness. What did Jesus do for us? He did two things. Number one, Jesus Christ delivered us from hell. That is, he made a way for God in his purity and his holiness to forgive our sins. Now, let me answer some questions because people have them. You say, well, why couldn't God just forgive our sins without Jesus? If God could forgive your sins without your sins being judicially paid for, then, then Satan would have an accusation against God. Satan was found with iniquity in his heart in heaven. He led perhaps the worship of heaven, perhaps protected the throne of God, but iniquity was found in him and he was lifted up in his pride. He thought he he could do God's job better than God and led an insurrection of angels against God. Did you hear me? And then he was kicked out of heaven, kicked to the earth. Him and a third of the angels that followed him. That's pretty bad. Do you hear what I'm saying? That's, that's pretty bad. But you got to understand that, again, God doesn't forgive us because he loves us. If he gave us because, forgave us because he loved us, then he would have to forgive Satan. There is no forgiveness for him. You understand? So see, Satan had his thumb on, on us and he, and he flicked his chin against God, said, God, what you gonna do now? I fell to the earth. You created Adam and Eve, mankind in your image. And now I've, I've, I've gone to the woman and the woman uh, seduced the man. Both of them sinned against you. Now they're going to go to hell. I know I'm going. I'm going to the lake. I can't do anything about it. I get it. But they're going too. And you can't do anything about it, God. What you going to do now? What you going to do now? Most people, listen, have the idea that God can forgive sin because he's God and that God will just forgive their sin because he's good. God doesn't forgive your sin just because he's good. God, God's forgiveness of our sin has to be based on justice. If God's forgiveness of our sin is not based on justice, then God has to be also just to Satan and the fallen angels. It would demoralize the universe. Let me say it this way. It would demoralize the universe. If God forgave your sin just because he loved you, that means, that means iniquitous beings could roam the universe, all the planetary heavens and the stellar universe and corrupt it the way they corrupted the earth when they fell. If God can forgive us just based on his love, then God's got to do the same thing to his enemy. The second thing about God forgiving us just based on his love is it makes us a pauper. It denigrates us. Instead of elevating our character, it puts us down. Well, we're no good anyway. I'm just going to love you. No. No, the way that God did this, he elevates us. He brings us up. He gives dignity to the human race. Now, now how did he do that? When Jesus forgives 
His forgiveness is based on absolute pure justice. Psalm 89, it's not in my notes. Psalm 89, 14. In fact, I'm going to do away with my notes now. Here we go. Justice and judgment are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. Psalm 89, 14. Justice and judgment are the foundation of the throne of God. Although God is love, he always has to act justly towards every entity in the universe. Or he doesn't, he's not worth being God. There's a flaw in him. You understand? If he doesn't, if his love is not based on justice. But see, God's love for us is based on absolute justice. Every sin, think about it, has to be dealt with. How many sins got Adam and Eve kicked out of the Garden of Eden? One. Go. How many sins kept Moses out of the promised land? Yeah. Every sin has to be judged. So let me let me get let me play with this a little bit. So so if I sin and wipe my mouth, say, God forgive me, help me, and you're gonna go back and do it again. You're laughing in for God's face. Because it took him a lot to forgive your sin. In fact, let me go a step further. See? See, two things happened when Jesus died for us. He delivered us from the penalty of sin. That's righteous justification. In fact, justification, it's on my notes. Justification is the action that acquits or frees the penalty of sin from us and that places to our credit Jesus standing. It has two, two, two things to it. First thing that Jesus does is forgives and acquits your sin. Now, how did that happen? You've got to go back and think about it. Not just anybody could, could, could take our sin and cause it to be remitted from us. There had to be an adequate sacrifice for us to be forgiven. So let me talk about it a little bit. You've heard this. If you've been here any length of time, I talk about this a lot. Uh, a man got us into sin, yes or no? What was his name? What was his wife's name? Did they sin? In fact, David said, Psalm 51, 5, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, talking about being formed in his mother's womb, and in sin did my mother conceive me. It doesn't mean that the act of conception is sin because God smiles on sex in marriage, yes? But what it does say is the moment conception occurs and you become a, a human being, you're part of a fallen race, a sinful race. The heart of man, Jeremiah 17, 9, in fact, our new speaker of the house mentioned that. Somebody got mad at him. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. He said the gun problem is a heart problem. I, I agree, that's true. Right? Hmm, wow. Anyway, here's what happens. So for God to forgive our sin, a man has to pay the penalty for sin. And there's the problem. Every person that has a belly button, And here's the age-old question. Did Adam and Eve have a, have a belly button? <laughs> Maybe God made them one, but they didn't need it because they were created, not born. Right? Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they broke fellowship with God, right? Before they, before they sinned, they were sinless. They were created from the hand of God. He scooped their bodies from dirt, 
Genesis 2-7, and breathed into their nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And then when Adam and Eve sinned, they broke fellowship with God's sin. Spiritual death is separation from God. When Adam and Eve sinned, they separated themselves spiritually from God. They didn't die that day. Spiritual death is the parent of physical death. Physical death is the, is the separation of the spirit and the soul, the inside of a person from their physical body. In fact, science says death is the cessation, listen to this, of communication with environment. You get that? Bible never calls death annihilation. It's separation. Spiritual death, separation from God. Physical death is the inward person being separated from the outward person, the body. The second death mentioned in Revelation 20 verse 15 is eternal separation from God being cast into a place called the lake of fire. And people that are in hell now, they're always being hell. They're going to the lake. They say, well, I'm going to the lake. See you later, but it ain't the lake you're thinking about. It's the lake of fire. Yeah, after judgment. So see, see, death is separation. So see, when Adam and Eve sinned, they separated from God. The only way, and that's why God, the devil was laughing like, I got God. He can't do a thing about this. Every human being born, when they have kids, when Adam and Eve have all these children, these children going to be mad and mean and arrogant and ugly and hateful and spiteful and going to say nasty things about God. And I'm so excited, the devil said, but he didn't understand. He didn't understand that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So let me cover it quickly here, but I can do it clearly. Why did Jesus come? No human being could pay the penalty for our sin. For God to forgive you, somebody has to pay the penalty for your sins. Huh? God can't let you into heaven because he loves you. God can only let you into a holy place called heaven because you are legally, judicially forgiven of sin. That way he's fair to the devil. He's fair to himself. Right? He can't just forgive. Well, going in, I know you did wrong, but going into heaven, you won't do it anymore. Well, really? Really? Did you know the, the doors to heaven are open eternally? And you can go in if you know Jesus, but there ain't nothing says you got to stay. So if you're not clean inside, just like Satan, iniquity in heaven was found in him. Think it, think it through. So what did God do? The only way that our sins could be judicially acquitted, paid for, wiped away, is for a man to stand in judgment for your sin. And there's the problem. There's nobody that can do that. Everybody born, like I said, with a belly button, they're in sin. They're in fellowship with the devil. He has authority over them. They're mortal. That means death doomed, right? They're out of fellowship with God, huh? Nobody can do it. So what did God have to do? And that's why Jesus is called the lamb that was slain from the foundations of the world. God knew when he created us and gave us that entity called free will that we could use that will against him. But God wanted to be loved. He doesn't want you to have to love him. He wants you to love him with your free will, with your whole heart 
and whole soul. What is the greatest commandment? They asked Jesus, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. That's what God wants. So he gave you a will. You're not a robot. You're not just programmed. I love you, Lord. God bless you. I love you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Praise you, Father. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. No, no. He wants your emotions. He wants your heart. He wants you. But that's dangerous. God gave Adam and Eve a will. And a will, for it to be a will, volition, a power of choice, you got to be able to choose between two things. That's the reason he put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil along with the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. He gave them a choice. They failed the choice. Eve yielded to the devil, was deceived by him. Adam saw that Eve was deceived. Adam saw that Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He wanted fellowship with his wife more than he wanted fellowship with God. Women, watch it. You got a lot of power you don't realize, right? I know you little pretty little things. I love my wife, but you know, you need to find your place, right? And then after they sin, no more fellowship with God. God comes down, where are you? Where are you? Well, they were hiding. Sin causes hiding. We put walls of self-defense around us. All of us are the same. So why is Jesus so different? Why did Jesus have to come? He's the first man born. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 calls him the last Adam. That also calls him the second Adam. What does that mean? He's the first man born since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, born in fellowship with God. How was he born in fellowship with God? Because an angel appeared to Mary. Go read Luke 1. Say, Mary, you found favor with God. I'm going to talk about it again at Christmas. You found favor with God. You're going to have a baby. Whoa, 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 I'm just 16. I'm engaged to my husband, but we ain't been together. We ain't we slept together yet. And angel, you know, well, don't do that yet because something else is going to happen. She said, the Holy Spirit's going to come on you. The power of the highest is going to come on you. And you're going to get pregnant. That holy thing that will come from your womb will be called the Son of God. Now, that, that's amazing. Some way Jesus migrated from heaven where he's always existed with the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, always existed. He pre-existed the little baby. He migrated into, into, into Mary's womb. And his body began to grow around his spirit. And then nine months later, Mary had him. And the angel said, that baby that will be born from your womb will be called the Son of God. Now, why is that a big deal? Because that means that Jesus is not a normal human being. That means that Jesus was deity in a human body. Jesus was literally the God-man. Why is that significant? That means that when Jesus was born, Jesus was not born with a taint of sin. Jesus was born in fellowship with God, right? Out from under Satan's jurisdiction. It also means that Jesus was born with an immortal body, a body that was not subject to death. Remember several times they took him to a hill? And I've been to Africa. They got some big old hills and cliffs over there. And they got him in the Middle East too. And they're going to throw him off the brow of the hill. But Jesus said, just move out the way. And he just walked right through him. Because he was immortal. 
He couldn't die because he was God. Jesus um, dominated the laws of physics on earth. He multiplied bread. He walked on water. He calmed a storm, right? He also exercised authority over Satan. Demon spirits came out of people. Lots of multiple healings occurred everywhere. Even raised the dead. See, he was not the average man. He was the God man. And see, why is that significant? See, you got a lot of voices today. And they're not understanding why Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. Now we've got people saying that Jesus sinned. Jesus never sinned. Never did wrong. The Bible says he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. It says we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. He's been tempted the way you tempted. Every single, he's tempted to overeat. He was tempted to get angry. He was tempted to gossip. He was tempted to lust, right? He was tempted to be selfish and narcissistic, and he passed it up. Not today, walking on. Right? Then when Jesus, when God was satisfied that Jesus ministered as much as God wanted to do, and Jesus just ministered for three and a half years. I mean, you got to think, if you're a logical person, why did God go through all this extent? Why did God spend all this time (coughs) having prophets prophesy, saying that a Savior's coming, a Messiah's coming, a virgin-born person's come, and he's just going to minister three and a half years. Why didn't you have him start ministering? He was like 15. Huh? Or in his teens. No, he should wait until he's 30 years old. Got baptized by John the Baptist, his first cousin. Holy Spirit comes on him. And then the power gifts, the gifts of God, the gifts of the Spirit manifest in him. Minister for three and a half years. That's all it took for him to show the disciples how to do it, how to, how to follow the Holy Spirit, how to yield to the Spirit of God. That's all it took for him to show us as believers how to overcome the flesh, how to walk with God, how to yield our will to him, right? And then at the very end of Jesus' earthly life, his embodied life, because he existed from eternity, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, for he made him who knew no sin to become our sin sacrifice, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus is hanging on the cross And he utters the words in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for the first time in eternity, God turned his back on his own son. Jesus became our sin, right? Jesus judicially became what you are. Now see, why am I taking time? Because if you know this on the inside, you know, you understand to what extent it took for God to bring his own son to earth and to die for your sin. So if you want to sin, just just don't forget, it took a lot for God to forgive your sin. Right? So Jesus became every nasty thought that you thought about. Selfish thought. Gossipy thought. Huh? Every emotion that's wrong huh every word every word you've spoken that you wish you could take once you speak a word you can't take it back what you gonna do what you gonna do Jesus became that then Jesus became everything you've ever done wrong in your whole life everything think about you and what you've been doing Jesus became your stuff wow 
He became a murderer. He became a rapist. He became a thief. He became a narcissist. He became a pornographer. He became a liar. He became me. And he became you. Is that amazing? Then when Jesus died, he didn't go immediately to heaven. I know Luke 16. Or, or back in Matthew 27, one of, the, uh, one of the two guys on the cross said, uh, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, most people think paradise is heaven. No, paradise was a holding tank where the Old Testament people went. They couldn't go to heaven yet. They had a promise of salvation and they, and they killed animals and put their blood on a sacrifice saying that one day a Messiah is coming. It was faith in what would come, but it hadn't come yet. When Abraham, Moses, David, Elijah, Daniel, all those guys died, they couldn't go immediately to heaven. I know they appeared to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. That didn't mean they were in heaven. They were in the holding place. They were awaiting the Messiah. And when Jesus died, Jesus went to Abraham's bosom, Luke 16. It's called paradise, Abraham's bosom. It's the righteous side of hell. It was the holding place for the Old Testament believers. They were waiting for their sins to be judicially taken care of by God's lamb of sacrifice. They couldn't go to heaven yet. You understand? You understand? Really? You get it? I'm taking time, but you got to get this. When Jesus died, he went to hell. Yeah. Now the jury's out. Did he go to the flame side? I don't know. Go read Psalm 88. That's a tough psalm to read. Go read Psalm 22. It talks about Jesus. It talks about the demon forces ravaging him. Jesus went to that righteous. He stayed there three days and nights. He told all of the Old Testament folk who he was. I'm that lamb you, you, you gave up every year and killed. I'm the lamb of God. They said, really? He said, I'm the one. I'm the one. He preached the gospel to them that are in prison so they could be set free. He preached the gospel in hell. When God was satisfied that judicially your sin was paid, your sin debt was paid, then the Holy Spirit came on Jesus right in hell. And Jesus, that spiritual death, came off of him. Jesus became your spiritual death. See, see, sin is not just a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing. Jesus didn't physically bear your sin. He spiritually bore your sin. Right? Who himself bare our sins in his own body on the tree. Sin just isn't just on your body. It's in your spirit. Jesus was spiritually estranged from God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, right? Huh? Then when Jesus, was, God was satisfied, your sin debt was paid, the Holy Spirit came on Jesus in hell and he got up out of that place and he said, I am he who lives. And I was dead. And he said, all you guys in Abraham's bosom here that have been waiting all these generations for the Messiah, I be the one. Follow me. The Bible says on the resurrection morning, Jesus got back in his physical body. It was resurrected from physical death. It was already stinking. But God, the corporeal substance of his body changed. And it became a flesh and bone body. 
And then Jesus was raised from the dead and laid the wrappings that his body was wrapped up in. He laid them aside and laid the little tissue that was on his face aside. Then he appeared to Mary Magdalene. Then he appeared to his disciples. And now the Bible says he's, he's up in heaven. He's ascended to heaven and he ever lives to pray for us and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He is our advocate general. He is our attorney in fact. And he has acquitted our sin. So every time you sin and you do wrong, he looks at Jesus and you confess your sin. He's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you. He looks at Jesus looks at him and said, I shed my blood for that person. I shed my blood for that word that was spoken. I shed my blood for that thought they've dwelled upon. I shed my blood for that action they've taken that is wrong. I shed my blood for that wrong motive they just repented of. Forgive them based on my blood. Is that good? Your sin has been dealt with and the devil can do nothing about it. It's judicially cleansed. It's been paid for, right? So, 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 so Satan is the accuser of the brother and he accuses us before God day and night. He wants to remind you of who you were and what you did. What you need to remind him of is who Jesus is and what he did in your stead. Say, yeah, yeah, that may be true, but you know what? I have an advocate. I have an attorney. He's never lost a case. And he pled my case before God. He became my sin, right? That's the first step in righteousness. Second step is God just doesn't forgive our sins. He said, let me take this a step further. Jesus, Jesus is the captain of our salvation. He's the firstborn among many brethren. Listen to this. Maybe you've never heard that. Jesus was the first person to ever be born from spiritual death to spiritual life. When the Holy Spirit came on him in hell and he was resurrected and threw off the spiritual death, threw off all of the thoughts, the words, the choices, the motives that humanity has made from the time that Adam and Eve sinned until right now, all the way into eternity. When Jesus threw that off, Gave you an ability to be free. The second thing God did was said, not only am I going to forgive you, but the second part of righteousness means what my son is, you become. As he is, so are we in this world. He was the first person to be born again. He was the head of a brand new race of people, new creation people. And when you're born again, Jesus puts to your account his payment for sin. It's paid, and it doesn't stop right there. He goes a step further and says, I, I don't want you to feel like a pauper. I don't want you to feel like a sinner. So I'm gonna tell you what, everything that I am, I give it to you. My standing before God is yours. That's righteousness. The ability to stand before God just as though sin, inferiority, and condemnation had never been in your life. You're brand new. Just as though you'd never sinned. Second thing Jesus did. Not only did he judicially cleanse our sin, secondly made us righteous. Third thing he did. <laughs> Having spoiled principalities and power. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. When Mary came to Jesus that resurrection morning, 
And he said, don't touch me, Mary. I'm not ascended yet to my father. But go tell your brothers, I send to my father and your father, my God, your God. What was Jesus doing? He was taking his sacrifice, his holy blood, and he was going to heaven between the time he was raised from the dead and the time he met with his disciples that Sunday night. Jesus went to heaven and he offered his blood as an eternal sacrifice for our sins and he offered him up and on the way up he had to go through the atmosphere of the earth. There is the third heavens where God is. There's the second heaven where all the demon powers of hell uh, create a cloud canopy of mess trying to keep the third heaven blessing out of the first, the, the, the first heaven which is right here. Huh? Third heaven, second heaven, first heavens right here. He's trying to keep heaven out of here. When Jesus went up to pay the price for our sin, the Bible says he spoiled principalities and powers. He's delivered us from the authority of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of the son of his love. When Jesus went through the atmosphere of the earth, all the demon forces of hell, the principalities, the powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness in high places tried to keep him from going and he chucked them off, he threw them off and he defeated them with his own blood. He took all of Satan's authority over you away. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me and heaven and earth go you therefore. He gave that authority to us too. So Jesus has judicially cleansed your sin. He gave you the same standing in heaven that he has. And then he gave you the same authority he has over your arch enemy Satan and, his, and all of the, uh, the workers that work with him. Yes or no? Now you ought to be just doing like this. Just shouting and just being happy because that's, what, that's where you are. So what happens if you're rooted and grounded in Jesus? What happens if you know who you are? You're a child of the king. You're forgiven, judicially forgiven. All of your sins, past sins, it's just as though they'd never been. Roy Hicks, who was uh, over the uh, Foursquare churches for many years back in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, he had a book, it's out of print. I looked for it yesterday, I can't find it. I got it on my shelf. He's got a book called He Who Laughs, Lasts and Lasts and Lasts. That's the name of the book. Chapter nine, he, he mentioned Einstein's theory of relativity, which part of that was if you could, um, if, if, if you could travel at the speed of light, and they say it's 187,000 miles a second, you would enter into, leave time, enter into eternity, and you would exist in the eternal now. If you could do that, you know, you've not been able to find a propulsion method to make you go 187,000 miles per second. But God is light. And so he said, because God is light and he lives in the eternal now, past, present, and future are now. You're living before God now. He sees you in Christ now, he sees you doing what he called you to do now before you come to Jesus. He sees you in Jesus now. <laughs> now, the bigger part, big part of that is because he sees you now and because Jesus forgave your sin, judicially cleansed your sin. God lives in the now. Past, present, and future are now. There's nothing in your past for him to see. It is as though it never existed. Everything exists before God is now. You're already in heaven. 
You're already seated with Jesus in heavenly places. You're already ruling and reigning with him. You say, but I'm struggling and messing around. He sees you from the position of eternity. He sees you clothed. He sees you empowered. He sees you equipped. When you're going to live up to what he's done. Huh? Huh? You heard the story about the eagle. The mama dropped the eagle's egg into a chicken coop. And he was raised with chickens, and he picked, picked his food just like the rest of the chickens. And he got to growing up because he's eating the food off the ground. And he saw this big old bird flying a mile in the high in the sky. I said, what is that? Mama says, that's an eagle. You'll never be an eagle. Well, you know what? He was an eagle, but he was living like a chicken. And he was picking his food off the ground, and he could have been soaring a mile high. And most believers today, not walking in their inheritance in Jesus, they're picking on the ground. They're flailing around with their flesh. It's time, to, it's time to rise and be seated with him in heavenly places. How many hear me?